You are listening to the most comprehensive source for news and views about today's unions. This is LaborUnionNews.com's Labor Relations Radio and your host, Peter List. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Hey, thanks for turning on and tuning in to Labor Relations Radio. Well, it has been an interesting summer. And if you've been following LaborUnionNews.com, as well as several of the episodes that we've done here on Labor Relations Radio, you probably already know that I've been going down a rabbit hole of research and experimentation with artificial intelligence. And if you've been paying attention, you already know that I started this venture by looking at declining birth rates population pyramids and the labor shortages that we've been having over the last couple years. However, what started me down the AI rabbit hole was an episode that we did back in May with economist John Morrow. And after speaking with John in May and seeing a lot of what he talked about during that episode confirmed in the news, like literally within two weeks after we aired the episode, I wanted to have another conversation with him to see if what I'm beginning to conclude is on the right track, and I'm hoping that it's not, and that is that artificial intelligence has the potential to end governments throughout the world through the displacement of millions of workers and the taxes that they bring to fund said governments. Now, for those of you that did not listen to our first episode, which was two hours long, by the way. I'll leave a link to it under the audio portion of this episode. However, by way of introduction and to give you a brief background, John Morrow is a free market economist who's consulted with a variety of organizations, including the Council of Foreign Relations, the Trilateral Commission, the Economic Innovation Group, as well as others. And again, while you may not agree with my conclusions or John's for that matter, if you're a subscriber to laborunionnews.com, Or even if you're not, go to laborunionnews.com and check out the AI at Work library, which is an alphabetized compendium of articles of jobs and industries that are being impacted or will be impacted by AI. We put it out a couple weeks ago, and we're doing a full section on AI on laborunionnews.com. So without further ado, here's economist John Morrow. You are listening to Labor Relations Radio. Well, John Morrow, welcome back to Labor Relations Radio, and it has been a fascinating fascinating four months since we did our first episode together. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. So I have been talking about you a lot, um, and I said this economist, I've, I've been saying this economist that I had on the podcast in May kind of opened my eyes to AI and the potentially dystopian effects it may have on society. So... If you recall, I got into this whole subject of AI as I've been looking at the population declines, the the declining birth rates, and from a labor market standpoint, high inflation, et cetera. And I thought going into our podcast in May that perhaps through immigration and this new thing called AI, it wouldn't be a bad thing. And we could manage through the population decline However, as you and I talked, and it was a a fairly long discussion, it opened my eyes to how 
dystopian this could get, for lack of a better term. And not too, it won't take too long to get there. And, and we're kind of on our way. And then, and I'm going to shut up in a minute. But <laughs> within two weeks, I think it was before I hit the record button, we were talking about how investment bankers or Wall Street folks could get replaced through AI. And then during the podcast, we talked about the folks out on the West Coast and Silicon Valley. Of course, we're seeing the writers and actors out on strike right now over AI. And within two weeks, I saw an article where JP Morgan is investing in AI to come up with an investment tool. Right. And then we also talked a little bit um, during the podcast about how AI is going to be destructive on relationships as people replace human touch with AI and that sort of, um, I guess, virtual reality slash sex bots, if you will. And just a couple of weeks ago, I saw another article it was in the New York Post about this influencer on social media, a gorgeous, I'm going to, I'm going to puff this up a little bit, this gorgeous, blonde, hot, young girl who's a fashion influencer that's completely computer generated AI. Yep. And yep. so that's on its way. And then we just go down the list of different things. So my conclusion, what I'm starting to conclude, and this I've got to ask you about productivity and such, AI is essentially still in its formative stages. We're not, we're not to where it's going to replace huge swaths of people yet. But as it increases its capabilities and becomes a more productive tool, and I'm kind of using the word productive uh, purposely, it's going to have a tendency to replace not just bankers and coders and all those high paying jobs. It'll go across all industries. And even in factories, if, and this goes to my question about productivity. If, for example, you can increase the productivity through using a tool like AI, and I had an a, a, a attorney on the podcast about AI recently, John Hyman, and he was he was talking about how he's already getting advertisements in his legal profession from AI companies or companies that are selling AI tools. So hypothetically. If you could reduce the number of associates, you may not re- you may not eliminate lawyers, but you could reduce the number of associates by half or two thirds or whatever, because all you got to do is type in prompts. Then you don't need as many associates, you don't need as many law professors, and you're taking those hundred thousand dollar, two hundred thousand dollar jobs out of the economy. That's going to have that ripple down effect, right, or trickle down. Correct. Correct. So. Tell me where I start to go off the path here. What I'm thinking is the only way to negate the negative effects of so much displacement within the next two to five years is if you rethink the taxable income or the income tax, so to speak, because you're not going to have income taxes. And this is my where I'm starting to conclude. Mm-hmm. And I'm hoping I'm wrong, but AI has the potential to end the nation state through the lack of income coming in, the revenue stream from taxes. Yep. Actually, it does. It does. So So where am I wrong on any of this? (laughs) 
was. <laughs> Tell me everything. Um, well, I, I don't see where you're wrong. The thing is, is that we have to look at human ingenuity and the ingenuity of computers now as to what they may bring to help us avoid a catastrophe. I, I do believe that we're going to go through a lot of pain. You're going to see there will be no more need for actors or actresses. They'll all be computer-generated. There'll be no more need for lawyers. That'll all be computer-generated. Judges will go at the, at the same time. Prosecutors may even go at, at that point. And so, you know, you're, you're looking at it as, you know, hey, you know, AI can really play a substantive part in our society where you don't want to have any biases. You know, it's just like, you know, okay, we don't want a prosecutor to be overly, uh, over, overly hyped up at getting maybe a certain race put in jail or a certain gender. Uh, put in jail, and so these will, you know, the, these will shrink the the amount of jobs that are out there. Now, what will come of that? You know, there will still be a need for repairs of uh, computers and, and things like that. There will still be need for repair of robots, and I I do think that that's where we will see is you know who's got the best AI that can tell a, a human at how to repair something just simply because it may be too expensive for a robot to do it. And the lowest cost may actually be the human to fix some, uh, some of these things that would go wrong. And so I think that you'll see where we will take on more grandiose infrastructure projects. We would probably like, you know, irrigate the South. I mean, when you're looking at not having enough jobs, if you look at the end of the Depression, we really, we brought in, you know, a lot of jobs like the Tennessee Valley Authority, a lot of these big projects that will help to make more productivity. And that's going to be the, the secret. How do we keep people productive so that our money has value. And that's where I say our currency is going to come to an end. It's going to come to an end because of the implosion of, of a lack of productivity because computers are going to be doing a lot of this um, stuff. And so uh, until we rethink, until we are able to have a better way to uh, do this, you know, we're going to go through a period of pain, whether or not that, that is four years, whether or not that's 10 years or 20 or 30 years. That all remains on, on in the laps of the politicians to see, okay, how, how quickly can we change over our currency? Because right now you can see that they're afraid of what's going to go on with our currency, and that's why they're looking to push digital currency very heavily so that they can control the volume that's in that's in circulation and where it's going and track where it's going to see like you know okay if japan and china are using u.s dollars how much are they holding how much are they using what's the what's their velocity of money in order to be able to determine the ebbs and flows of our economy and so I, I think that, you know, 
we look at, you know, you're going to have to go to a currency. And I, you know, I think that there's a lot of people out there that, you know, are, are looking at gold and silver. They want to be in that gold and uh, silver. That's the only thing that they know. They're a gold bug or a silver bug. And I think that really the only thing that saves us is a productivity-based currency that the people control. Well, let me back you up for a second, because this is where I'm getting a little confused. If an economy, let let me make it even more basic. If a government can only exist through the taxation of whatever it's taxing, whether it's its citizens, its business, its sales, you know, the goods and services being exchanged. If you have, as we do right now, an economy that is based primarily upon income tax, some sales tax, property tax, et cetera. But if you don't have the incomes coming in, how are you going to fund the government? Okay. So with productivity based currency, it does not rely on a tax to be able to fund the government at the point that productivity currency is put into place, the interest that you would see on a loan, because a loan is a promise, is essentially a promise to be productive. I will be productive and I will make this money in order to be able to pay you the money back. And that money that's paid back is a higher amount than what you borrowed because of the interest. Well, that interest has to get into the economy somehow. And underneath the productivity-based system, it is the government that spends the money into the, the system. And so that's where all the interest on everything that adds up is, would be government money that it spends into the economy. Now, if they... So this gives the government an incentive to look towards prosperity and always expanding the economy. That's a benefit of the productivity-based currency because if they don't expand the economy and they don't expand prosperity, then they have less money that they can spend. And so they're always pushed in a direction to do the right thing, even if they don't want to do the right thing. So here's where it's losing me. You've got to have people, in some respects, doing something productive. Correct. And if you're looking at AI, so McKinsey came out recently and said it's probably going to replace 12% of the workforce or 12 million people, which I think is around 10% of the workforce in the next several years. WEF came out or somebody came out and said worldwide up to 900 million people, which as I'm looking at all the different articles and, you know, the different applications, you're really looking at potentially more than that, where you're going to need some sort of either welfare welfare system or tax type system to be able to just merely feed these people, these millions upon millions of people that no longer have work that feeds into the system. And if your government's not getting enough, I just don't see how it's going to be able to feed people, let alone put them in houses and all that. Universal basic income is going to fall flat because you don't have the revenues for that. Right. Well, you know, when, when you look at this, it's like, okay, how, how are we going to feed all of these people that are out of work? Well, then you're like, okay, we're 
possibly returning to an agrarian society to where they're actually planting uh, their own crops and growing their own food, or they become part of the agricultural industrial uh, complex that that's there. So that's, that's a potential that you see, but when you have a productivity-based currency, if people want to work or if they want something and they're willing to indebt themselves to do that, well, then the government is going to have money. And education, uh, things like that are a benefit to that. But AI also helps make us more efficient in some of our jobs. And so I do think that, you know, we will have uh, a huge amount of pain. I, I, I don't see any way around that. We're going to have that for a number of years. And then it's going to be based upon, you know, energy. How, you know, how do we produce the lowest cost um, energy? So I think there will be a revival in nuclear, uh, new nuclear technology, something like molten salt reactors, even potentially fusion power here on Earth uh, to be able to do that. And I also think that we will see where we will want to go out and explore and where you'll see, okay, we're going to have a you know base on the moon. We'll have a city on the moon at some point, and then maybe we'll have something on Mars. And I know that's you know getting out there, but I mean, when you have a whole lot of people that are dreamers that really want a better life, they're not going to settle for eating scraps. Their their human ingenuity will find a way to be able to create wealth. And so that that's where I'm I'm looking at. I'm I'm saying that, you know, I, I can see all of these. There will be a great push to be able to create jobs. And whether or not that's infrastructure projects, maybe we have to dig a canal from the west coast to the east coast you know, extend the Rio Grande all the way through California and, you know, have a have a, a channel through the Rocky Mountains, you know, that, that's something that's going to be a massive project that's going to take many years to do, that you're going to need a lot of uh, humans to help do that job because they would be the lowest cost price for labor, whereas robots, there's a significant cost for robots, significant cost for batteries that would run the robots and so you know i i look at it as okay you're going to have to do big things you're going to have to think big in order to be able to get out of the problem that we're going to be facing and we haven't had a president uh really think big for a long time as to say you know like hey how are we going to turn our south our dry and and um parched southwest how are we going to bring water to that and make that green how are we going to get more water to california you know how are we going to eliminate these problems and you see all kinds of solutions with new nuclear technologies being able to uh, produce water very cheaply so there'll be a lot of things where a lot of these environmentalists that are standing in the way of productivity 
this will be even more amplified that, you know, people will see that, hey, it's not the environmentalists that are doing things that are positive in our society. They're doing things that are negative in our society, and they are preventing us from being productive and preventing us from having prosperity. So what you're talking about in some respects is decades away. And it sounds as though what I'm saying decades away, I'm talking about villages or, or colonies up on the moon, right. Mars, etc. What it appears to me, and this is kind of based on our last conversation, is that we're looking at this revolution or displacement taking place within the next two to five years. It's already happening. Right. Yeah. And there doesn't seem to be a way in which you can slow down the technology. And what I was starting to lean into is, you know, the only thing I can think of to somehow slow it down artificially is for the government to revamp the tax code to tax the corporations who are implementing AI on the number of bodies and almost setting up like a universal basic income through those that are displaced. That will most likely happen. You know, that scenario has been discussed by many economists that are are looking at this impending implosion of our economy due to um, AI. And yes, we do think that things like that will happen. And again, it's going to be whoever is at the helm of this, whether, you know, it's the, the United States or China, and how they deal with this and how do they get people productive. We think, you know, at, at first there will be welfare, but then we believe that that will transition to a workfare type of system. And then, you know, we see that the nor- the, the natural progression, logical progression of that would be large, big, huge projects that we do that may be, you know, multinational projects. They may just be national projects, but we do see that happening as a result of AI because, you know, again, it's just going to put so many people out of work and there's only so much, um, you know, so much farming that you can do. You, you have to have other people be productive in, in other ways rather than just to feed uh, people. And, you know, another one of those is, okay, uh, we're going to have to have uh, fuel. That's one of the things that is going to be harder for robots and computers to do. Not to say that they won't play a part in those industries like mining. Um, they most certainly will play a part in there, but it won't be nearly as egregious as, say, for like lawyers. You know, lawyers are going to be a a dying breed, and you know they will probably try to transition to politics as quickly as they can, and then it'll be okay. Do we really need to have a million chiefs when we have an AI that can make you know unbiased decisions and you know give us a real world view of what those decisions could possibly result as? So I know some of the lawyer listeners are going to get all pissed off at me, but part of the problem, I think, with trying to foresee the future is like chat GPT, for example, and I've been playing around with it here and there since we talked, it's mm-hmm. still error prone. 
you know, you want, you want to write an article on such and such, or you want a legal brief on such and such. And there's a case. So I can't remember when it was, but within the last six months where a lawyer submitted a chat GPT, I think AI written brief to a judge and citing a case and the case didn't even exist. Never existed. Right. Correct. Correct. So you still yeah. have those to overcome, but as I've had some conversations, it's been, it's still error prone, but that's going to change. Like, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you go out and you see like uh, Google's Bard. If you look at Microsoft's in their Explorer, those are more accurate, um, but they don't have nearly the creativity or the leap of ingenuity that uh, chat GPT does. Uh, you know, when, when, when you look at it, it's like, you know, hey, help me get my client out of jail. And then it, re- you know, it, it looks and, well, I can't really figure out how to do that. So I'm just going to lie. Uh, that's essentially what the, what the AI, artificial intelligence, is, is doing there. So, you know, I, I do see that that's going to come to an end, you know, fairly soon, probably within the next year or two, you're going to see, you know, a much higher accuracy rate and you're going to see, you know, very cheap AI. And uh, I think you're going to see websites. And again, I've already seen them starting to populate as to, you know, lawyers wanting it to do for case research. Now you don't need a paralegal to do that research for you because it's all available by an AI. And pretty soon, like I said, it's going to replace the lawyer, it's going to replace the prosecutor, it's going to replace the judge. I I really do see that because people right now, our country is probably as divided as it's ever been, and people don't trust each other. And hey, you know, as long as I know that there's, you know, I, I can view this code and everything and I can test it test out the answers that it has to see whether or not it's, it's correct or not, I can trust it to be unbiased. And I think that's where, you know, a lot of people are nowadays. I think there are more, there's more negativity and toxicity just in general, in the general public now, rather than positivity. And I, I do see that, you know, bringing us on a, on a downward slope. I do see that slope ending and I do see that picking up and it'll be, you know, how bad America fares will be, you know, whoever our next president is and who they are, you know, are they willing to think outside the box? Are they willing to look at big things or are they going to do the simple thing, which is, you know, Hey, we're, we're going to start taxing all of these, big businesses because they're using AI and not using a human so that we can, you know, put that money over to humans so that they can exist. And yeah, I I mean, I I do think that we're going to have some of that. I don't think that that's going to last for forever though. Well, you touch on the division and you can probably, you know, somebody's going to have a different opinion, but you can point your finger to a lot of the division based on what people are getting in terms of news information. Right. Right. And I don't know if you saw within, I think it might've been last week headline drudge 
I actually did a post on this that the newsrooms are now being replaced by AI. Right. And News Corp, which is Rupert Murdoch, I think he's got, it's either in Australia or somewhere else, he's got a group of four AI slash writers putting out thousands of articles a week. So they're essentially using whatever app. Google is going around shopping around the country to news publishers to their new AI system for news. So it it might be in the not too distant future that most of the news we we get is AI generated. Right. And right. then then of course you got to wonder okay is it going to be biased or not biased and and that sort of thing. Right. And that's, you know, some of the things that we'll see. But I mean, even like, you know, day-to-day things, uh, I'm not going to embarrass my goddaughter by naming her, which one specifically, because I have three goddaughters. But one of them, you know, used chat GPT to have it write a breakup letter with her boyfriend. Nice. And, you know, these, these, <laughs> and I read it and it was really, it was really good letter you know and, and so it's just like you know hey you know if you can have a lot of ingenuity you can put emotion into a letter into a movie script into a commercial script and you say you know hey i want to try to manipulate these people into buying more potato chips or i want to try to manipulate these people and because they can do uh, things on such a massive scale now you're going to have advertising that's tailored just to you that knows what colors that you like that, you know, is going to write it in the script that you like based upon a certain archetype of personality, which they will gain from whatever your credit card purchases at that. So, you know, there, there are a lot of, uh, there are a lot of things that are going to happen just on, you know, day to day that AI is going to be able to do better than the, than, than the human. Uh, for instance, a uh, little town, I had a guy that was uh, wanting to run for mayor, and he didn't really know what type of platform uh, he needed. And so he went into ChatGPT, and he said, you know, I need a platform of items that I want to accomplish that will resonate with the public. And he got back 15 things and it had really good policy that was written better than what I could do myself writing as a, as a policy expert as well uh, was better than, than what I could do. And it was things that it was some of the things that he didn't even think about that was bothering the people and, you know, that was like, you know, a, a higher water bill. He never thought that the water bills were that high. But then when they checked it close to all the surrounding community, it was good. So it gave that person 10 things to champion. And guess what? He got elected as mayor. And so there's an AI that is replacing Political yeah, consultants. Yeah, I was just going to say that's replacing a whole bunch of people in DC. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's interesting. I'm I'm still kind of stuck on your goddaughter doing a, a Chat GPT <laughs> breakup letter. We had the best of times and the worst of times. <laughs> so, am I misthinking the fact that this could be 
government ending in the not too distant future, just based on the lack of taxes that will be coming in? Because we're at $32, $36 trillion worth of debt right now, right? We're right, just going to keep right. printing more money? Yes, that's 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 the plan that they're that they're doing. I don't think that they'll be successful at creating the digital currency like what China did. I do think that you know people will point to China's currency and you know say, hey, you know we 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 need to do that. But I I just don't see the American people allowing that to happen. And I see you know pushback as to what we should do to create prosperity. You know, and again, we're going to need lots of energy in order to be able to produce prosperity at, at that point in time. So, you know, I, I do see a phase where we go where government either has to change with the times, has to innovate or die. And if it doesn't innovate and provide prosperity, yes, I, I do see governments ending. I see a lot of governments ending around the world if they don't do what is necessary. And a lot of this will be going back to our current way our currency, our banks and taxes interact. And again, if you go back to a, a productivity-based currency, which that is a, a commodity-based currency because labor is a commodity, then you can look at that as being, you know, the best type of currency that you can have. And when you look at that, if you don't have slavery, then it is the people that are in charge because the government cannot create any money unless the people are willing to indebt themselves at that point. Well, I guess part of the, I'm trying to look up right now, how many undocumented workers are in New York City? Because if you've been seeing the headlines over the last few weeks, Eric Adams, the New York City mayor, saying we can't handle anymore. And I'm kind of taking this down to kind of the city level, where if you've got AI displacing a whole lot of white-collar workers, for lack of a better term, in, say, New York City, and I'm... I'm kind of combining thoughts here. You have roughly, say, 15 million people in New York City, right? And all of a sudden, they can't afford the undocumented workers there now. Right. Losing the white-collar workforce or a, a large number of them, they have less tax revenues coming in. And many years ago, and it might have been the movie Escape from New York, like New York City supposedly has three days worth of food, and then it runs out. Mm-hmm. Where are those people going to go? You know, if they, if you take that, they're not all going to work farms in New Jersey. No, no, they're, they're not. But let's say, you know, let's look at, you know, uh, uh, bigger projects. Let's look at putting, say, like 40 uh, nuclear desalination plants on the California coast, maybe California Baja, and pumping water through the Rocky Mountains and putting water in all the dry salt lakes in the south to turn it green again. And now you have places for cities to be built around that. You have tremendous amount of work that needs to be done, tremendous amount of labor that needs to be done. And so, you know, thinking really big, really huge projects in, in that manner 
I think are what are going to be, you know, on the, what's going to be on the table in order to be able to solve these problems. So, you know, if you look at it, what happens when New York declares bankruptcy? You know, you're going to have some people that are probably going to starve to death that are there. It's shameful. It's, it's hurtful. But you're going to see, okay, there's going to be a project somewhere that's going to use a lot of these people, and then they'll be busing them to wherever that project is. And so, I, you know, I, like I say, I, I see the only answer to this are some of the bigger projects that are going to be need to be done for people to exist and to survive. And a lot of those are, you know, ones where it's going to be cheaper to have a human do it than what it will be to have a uh, computer do it. So you're talking like a WPA that was during the Roosevelt administration back in the 30s, yep. right? Yep. Our populations, I'm, I just looked this up, our population in 1935 was about 127 million. Right. And the WPA, they employed roughly or put to work roughly 8 million people. And we're now at 335 million people. And if right. you were to scale that up, you'd have to have a government project that would put out or put to work 24 million people, roughly? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's, that's exactly what I'm saying. You know, when you look at, like, our retirement Social Security uh, system that a lot of people are looking forward as for their retirement, it just isn't enough money. It's going bankrupt. It's always been going bankrupt. How do we, you know, get out of that? Well, you know, there are economists that look at, well, let's take the Social Security money. Let's let people come into the United States, but let's do improvement projects. And then when the government sells that land, because when you look at the Southwest, the U.S. government owns a tremendous amount of land that's there in the Southwest, and they could sell that land after they improve it and make a big profit off of it. And then that would help for the Social Security, you know, help to try to pay off the uh, Social Security. And so these projects where, you know, hey, it's a desert, there's no roads, there's no uh, natural gas, there's no electricity going into these areas. Well, now, hey, we need to create that. And I see, you know, where... We have cities that contract now, like Cleveland is a shadow of its former self. I think Cleveland at one time had 1.2 million people, and now I think Cleveland has 240,000 people. And so you see it shrink, and you've seen people be you know, much more in a much more dense area, and then you see all this empty land and burnout buildings and stuff that are around it. You know, Detroit, Cleveland has a, a lot of the major cities have went through that where the cities have shrank and the people are moving to either the suburbs or they're moving to the inner city. Well, I think that this will help to expand. And yes, we won't have people living more densely populated. I think that you will see more people in the rural communities because we'll have the infrastructure to be able to do that, I think we'll have the infrastructure for people to be able to realize the American dream. It's just going to be a future 
that is going to be alien to most of us, to people like me, to people like you, we're going to say, hey, you know, the government's going to be in charge of the banking system uh, so that so you don't have to pay any taxes. But, you know, they're going to keep track of every loan that you take out. Now there's more serious if you default on a loan. There'll be more things like that that we'll see that will change. Is that like debtor's prison? Um, I don't think that we we'll say serious get into, about defaulting, but that's right. Right. I, I don't think that we would get into that, but I do think that there'll be much more stringent on your ability to declare bankruptcy. I just think that that's, that's what they'll have. And I think that we will almost have to transition from a pure welfare to a workfare state in order to bring productivity up because you can't have people you won't be able to afford to have people just sitting at home twiddling, you know, their fingers and watching TV all day. They're actually going to have to do something, whether that's on the computer at home or whether that's going to a project that's doing or whether or not that is in a, um, a factory. So we're still talking quite a ways down the road for that. And as fast as this seems to be moving, is there any way to slow it down? I don't, I, we don't see that ability because if you say, okay, we're going to put the brakes on AI here in the United States, well, then what, you know, who's going to put that on for China and who's going to put it on for Russia? I mean, it's, it's a national security issue. So I, I don't think that, you know, you're, you, you have a no-win scenario at that point, okay? If you allow AI to go on the way it's going on, we're going to have a worldwide depression worse than in the 1930s. This will be the Great, Great Depression. Or if you don't, well, then America may not exist, or Russia it would be in fear of us that they may not exist, or China may not exist. So I think because of the interest of each one of the countries, their own self-interest, that they're going to allow the AI to you know, move forward and I think that, you know, it's going to become more and more a part of our lives. We're going to go through a very bad period. And so if you look at, like, you know, we're looking at 24, 2024 is the start of the Great Depression. You know, if we have a president that is just going to go in there and say, oh, I'm going to tweak some knobs and pull some levers and we're going to expect it to be okay, um, no, we're, we're, we're going to, you know, then go into 10 or 20 years of a very bad depression where people are starving in the streets. Or you could have a next leader that is visionary that says, okay, we need to change our currency system right up front, and then we need to have very large projects that we can have people, all kinds of people work on at every different level, whether or not they're extremely intelligent or whether or not they don't have hardly any, any intelligence at all, whether or not they're skilled or whether or not they're unskilled. You need to have you know those types of, of jobs. And I think that the government would be, the, you know, they would be the amplifier because they will see empty land, they will put the roads in. They will put the gas lines in. They will put the electricity in. And then you got to let the capitalists go in 
and start building, you know, whether it's it's um, businesses or whether or not it's residences and, and start to create these areas for the people that are wanting to come into America. Um, I do see a whole lot of people leaving America. They it, We might be brought down to where, you know, it's no better to be in America than what it is to be in Mexico. That could happen. Not likely that it would happen because I do believe that we could have another revolution in the United States if people are put their backs against the wall. Hey, I can't eat. I, I, you know, I don't have any food. I don't like what's going on. I do see, you know, hey, uh, you think January 6th was bad? Well, <laughs> what happens when they come with the torches and the pitchforks and actually uh, do burn the place down because, hey, I can't feed my child. I can't feed my wife. Uh, my grandma and grandpa can't, you know, can't eat. Those, those are the types of things that I think that um, the politicians are going to want to avoid. And so there's going to be tremendous pressure to think really big and to do some of these bigger projects. John, let me, let me kind of bring this back to where things are today. And I'm just going with the actors and writers strike out in Hollywood. There's close to 200,000 people that are fighting AI among the streaming issues, things like that. Right. Also in California, the Teamsters were successful in getting the state legislator, legislators to enact a bill that would prohibit an AV, autonomous vehicle, especially trucks, being on the highways without a driver. Right. However, they're unsuccessful, and this was, I think, within the last week or two, in stopping the robo-taxis in San Francisco. Right. So, and it seems to me that where successfully the unions are at least trying to put the brakes on AI, mm. it's a temporary solution. It's still gonna it's still gonna happen. Like stopping right. autonomous vehicles on California's I five, cool, but eventually it's gonna surpass that. And the people in charge are just gonna say, Yeah, screw it, we'll we'll let it become like that movie Logan where the tractor trailers are without a tractor going through the highways. Right, right. Well, I mean, you look at this, I mean, there's always competition in the marketplace. And, you know, like it or not, you know, the, when when you look at world markets, they're always wanting to be competitive. There isn't a country that doesn't wish that they were competitive in the world marketplace. And so, you know, like I remember in the late 80s when they started bringing robots in, the UAW said, hey, this is replacing, you know, a, a welder by having this robot here. And um, we want right. concessions that you're going to pay this guy and he may, you know, be in a cafeteria all day. You know, those are the things that you can say, well, yeah, you can do that for a short time. But eventually another car company isn't going to pay that other union worker to just sit there and watch the robot. And so you're going to have competition that could put them out. And what you uh, well, that, saw. That you know, I think is happening now. Right, I mean, right. The whole transition to EVs and the UAW is going to the bargaining table. Well, if they agree to something like paying people to sit home or sit in the cafeteria, right. Hyundai, Toyota, all the other non-union companies are not going to do that. 
Right. And, you know, we, we're looking at what's happening with the UAW right now with great interest because if the UAW gets their way uh, with this, we look at it as a trigger that could start the depression earlier. We do look at, you know, uh, the possibility of three, the, the big three automakers in the United States potentially going under much quicker uh, than what they could be without the possibility of being bailed out. So, you know, when you look at that type of an impact on the United States and the car, the car industry doesn't have as much effect as what it once did, but it's still very substantial and it could cause a cascading effect of having all of these other smaller producers that feed the big three automakers go out of business and then that can cause the banks to cascade in, into failure. And so we're looking at this, you know, with a lot of interest in into seeing how this is resolved because we, you know, we, we see it as something that could start the worldwide depression. You know, it's one of the things that could be a trigger. It's, it's worth clarifying because we're kind of getting into this and you just touched on it that yeah, the contracts involving the big three in the UAW represent about 140,000 people. And you think, oh, well, that's not that much. But you just touched on the fact that you've got all the different suppliers and stuff. And so the total auto, auto industry that could be impacted could be upwards, I believe, about a million people, right? Yeah, we, we always say multiply by 10 when you're talking about the auto industry. So, yeah, right. uh, you know, 104,000 times... Uh, 10 year, 1.4 million. So, right. So you keep saying we, and we should have probably clarified this at the beginning, but I figured I'd hit it at the intro. Who is we, when you say, when we look at. (laughs) So uh, the economic innovations group, EIG, there are several, I believe it's up to 65 economists now that are, all different persuasions of economists from Keynesian to uh, Franklin to uh, Freeman, all different types of economists. And they're, you know, looking at the economy and they're making suggestions. So when you go out to EIG.org, you see something that is very nonpartisan and you see what, you know, what predictions that, uh, we're putting out there, you know, how small business growth is way, way down. Uh, we're not as innovative as what we once were. You see the goal now is for a lot of entrepreneurs is to get a business, grow it to a medium size, and then sell it off to a big company like Google or Facebook or, or Amazon. And, you know, we're, we're not having that variety in our economy, we're not having diversity in our economy that creates more ingenuity, creates more competition. We're, we've seen that go way, way down. And we're seeing this, you know, as the rise of big business, which it, it harms all of America when we're not as diverse and when we're not becoming ingenious. Uh, in order to be able to be more competitive. We've lost our mojo, uh, so to speak, 
And I, you know, I, like I say, I, I think that that's where we're going to go through a period of pain before we find our ingenuity again and our competition again and get back into having a healthy amount of successful small businesses and a healthy amount of big businesses. So let me ask you when, and talking about EIG and then the auto industry, when you say that we believe XYZ with regard to the auto industry, is that kind of the consensus of the EIG economists? Um, I won't say that it's the official one. It is of the ones that I uh, speak with, and I probably speak with close to half of them. So, yes, I, I, I do believe that that is, you know, where, where they would end up at if they created an official report at this point. So the pending auto negotiations, well, they're talking now, but the the potential for them going out on strike in September could result in more economic malaise than if UPS with 340,000 workers had gone out last month. Correct. Or earlier this month. Yeah. Okay. Just just due to the amount of suppliers and everybody else who's attached to the auto industry? Correct. Correct. Interesting. Well, I haven't seen AI be one of the catalysts in terms of discussions with the UAW and the big three, but certainly the EV transition is. Yeah, yeah, that, that's, that's for sure. And, you know, the EV, uh, when we look, you know, especially when I look at it as an economist, it, I, I see why they want to pursue that direction. I think it's based on a lot of fault uh, misnomers. And I do see that as being a bubble that will blow up much larger than like uh, the Solyndra uh, scandal, what wind and solar didn't wind up being what they thought that it would be. I do see this as being a, a much bigger problem because at the end of the day, uh, you can produce a gasoline-powered car much, much cheaper than what you can in an EV-powered car. Until they solve that problem, that cost of the batteries, I don't think that you know the, the economy is just not going to be able to handle us all going to those cars. There will be a lot more people that are going to be a lot more, you know, they're going to be out of work but they're not going to be able to travel anywhere because they won't be able to afford an EV car. Well, it's interesting. I don't know if you, I posted an article this morning on Labor Union News. Um, The Ford CEO, I don't remember his name, just took a cross-country drive with a Ford Lightning truck. And I guess it it, it was less than stellar in terms of his ability to get it charged up on Route 66. So yeah, yeah. I think we're quite a ways away from it being functional. California has said that if they need to tap into, I guess, the batteries of the electric cars to f- use the power for the grid, they're going to start doing that. So yeah. Yeah. it's not quite ready for prime time yet, but we're being thrust into it. Yeah, I'll, I just look at, you know, that's a, it's a mining industry problem. The rare earth elements that are used... Uh, to be able to make the batteries, uh, to make a lot of the technology that's in the car. You know, we're 
dependent, uh, wholly dependent upon China for that. Not that we don't have rare earth elements here in the United States. We have lots of rare earth elements, but our environmentalism won't let us mine them. And so we have a real problem in that respect um, that we're becoming dependent upon a communist nation that doesn't share our worldview or our culture. And actually, you know, it, it, it could rush us closer to Armageddon or World War III the more that we do become dependent upon electric cars. And so, you know, I, I do think that, you know, I, I just, you know, looking in my crystal ball, I think that we'll see this, you know, whole electric car thing, except for, you know, higher end cars, because electric cars are really cool. I'm, I'm a guy that likes a 350 or a 454 Chevelle made back in 1970s, but I'll tell you, getting in a Tesla and being able to beat a Chevelle uh, with a 454 down the drag strip is really cool. And so, you know, I do see that those cars will be around. I just think that they're going to be for the people that have more money. They'll be more of a luxury item and that I still believe that most of our cars are going to be gasoline at the end of the day because I just I, I can't see how they're going to get the costs down far enough for the average American. Well, as kind of a side note, this is the reason I went to diesel years ago is I know if in the worst case scenario, at least there will be diesel at truck stops. So, right. yep. Yep. <laughs> but yep. yeah, the electric cars are interesting. They can't do the cannonball run though. Right. Right. So you know, there's a seventies reference. Yep. Yep. <laughs> so let me, let me kind of ask you this question. And it was based on something you just said that if we're looking at a bubble and we're, you've got the government that's basically funding the conversion to EV, mm. right? They've yep. given all these companies money, grants, whatever. If the bubble bursts and people realize that we've got to go back to petrol, what happens to those plants that are converting to, say, EV right now, the workers in those plants? Well, and that, that's what you know. I, I, I look at here. We've got Avon Lake Ford plant, which uh, makes a heavy duty, I think it's the F450 uh, truck. Um, they are converting it over right now in a multi-billion dollar upgrade to battery-powered vehicles. And I see that I, I see that lasting a maximum of maybe seven years because I think that that implosion uh, is going to happen very soon. If it doesn't happen in 2024, I think it will happen in 2025 or at the latest by 2026 that we will see an implosion in the EV market. It's you know people are trying to force an idea which does not match the uh, metrics of the marketplace. Do you listen to Peter Zion at all, or have you listened to him? No, I, I haven't. He's a, a geopolitical analyst, not an economist, but you touch on several things that he's touched on with the rare earth materials, et cetera, for EV. He's, he's essentially said, and I'm hopefully not going to misquote him too much, that in order to 
fulfill what is needed to convert to EVs, you're going to need at least to double the capacity of being able to mine those rare earth minerals, and which has never been done. You, to double that capacity in such a short period of time is just impossible. The second thing he has said, and which you touched on, is China. And this I've seen through other uh, demographers, I guess. China is shrinking very rapidly mm -hmm. in, in terms of their population. So right. they've got more old people than young people. So if you look at that as a supply to those rare earth minerals for EV, your Apple Watch, whatever, like they're not going to have enough workers to sustain their economy within the next decade. So that yeah. as a yeah. resource for us is going to probably go away. Right. Right. And, you know, and, and back to the demography thing, <clears throat> as we go down this population pyramid and ours is not inverted yet, but it's getting there, mm -hmm. you know, it's around the world though, Russia, and they've got the Ukraine issue and all that sort of stuff. Like there's all these big population centers that are declining in the amount of workers that they have. Yeah. And so for us to say, oh, we can go just go to China and buy the rare earth minerals, that may not be there in another, as you said, seven years. Right, or, right. I, I do think that uh, he's probably wrong on us being able to double, triple, or even quadruple the rare earth elements that are necessary for um, batteries. I, I uh, do believe that that can be done fairly quickly, like, you know, five years, six years time frame, we can uh, double that very easily if we don't have the environmental regulations on us that prevent that from happening because we still have mines that are sitting abandoned here in the United States. But China's rare earth elements come from their steel production. And we have uh, a similar type mine here in the United States that is uh, mining iron ore and then it can only mine so much iron ore because it's got a bunch of rare earths that it brings up with it and they're only allowed to bring up so many tons of rare earth in a year and so if, if you were to say okay we're just going to let that thing run flat out and we're going to take care of the dust so that people aren't breathing it in from the towns and cities around you know, I we we could you know double that you know very easily. I think the the pro problem's going to be for other countries is technology and and technology sharing, especially in the uh, nuclear space. And I think the nuclear space has the potential to make the rare earth element space much more profitable, and also the high strength, low weight steels. Uh, I think that new nuclear technologies will be able to help make them affordable because of the synergies of of the process that they do. And I also, you know, see things like uh, plasma gasification, which is a very mature technology, but has never had the very inexpensive electricity to be able to run it, which would eliminate a lot of our landfills across the United States. I do see that coming to fruition uh, with our new nuclear technologies that should, you know, be, uh, they're, they're in process now of being developed 
And yes, they have some technological hurdles, but they look like technological hurdles that are not huge hurdles to overcome, that they're relatively easy to uh, find a solution to. I do see those being developed probably within the next 10 or 15 years. And a lot of people in the nuclear industry will say, well, that will never happen because anything in the nuclear industry takes 30 years to do. And I'm like, well, when your back's against the wall, people need water, people need cheaper energy in order to be able just to survive on, I think that you'll find politicians change laws really quickly to allow us to become competitive on the world stage. Yeah, so much of this goes to the politics, and I don't see that getting better. Obviously, you've got the issues with Trump being indicted. You've got DeSantis, who is way down on the polls, mm-hmm. um, and the Biden administration, who seems to be favoring environmentalism. And, and of course, if Biden doesn't make it, then you're looking at either Kamala Harris or Gavin Newsom. So that I don't see changing. So right. I, don't have, I don't have a real optimistic view of the politics, at least in the next four to six years. Yeah, well, and uh, neither do I if all things, you know, stay the same. The thing that I do believe that, you know, things will change. Uh, Our division in our country, I think, will get worse. I think that it will be much worse than when we were having cities on fire. I think that that will become worse. And um, I think that there will be a push for our politicians to change. And so we'll, we'll see what happens. I think that there will be common sense that will come out of this. And I think that that is necessary pain that you need to go through. No different than a child having to go through the pain of, of learning something. That's what we as a, as a whole are going to learn is, is that, you know, we can't have policies that make us non, you know, uncompetitive. We can't have policies that you know won't let us uh, use our own resources. We're going to have to use these resources and uh, and other things to be competitive. Otherwise, you're simply going to starve to death. And you know, uh, unfortunately, I mean, we we saw that with uh, Mao in China. You know, okay, these are my policies, and you're going to follow my policies. Well, he followed the policies and. I, I forget, you know, it's like 60 million people starved to death in China. So, you know, we, we, we in America, I don't think we'll stand for that. We got too many guns to stand for that. Um, so I, I do think that, that we'll, we'll go through a dark period, but I do think that we'll triumph on that other side of that. And, you know, again, if we get somebody like a Gavin Newsom in for our next president, I do think that, you know, we're going to have a prolonged great, great depression if we have somebody that is willing to uh, look at reason and do things in a capitalist manner. I do think that you're going to see someone like a, uh, a Donald Trump or even a, uh, a Ron DeSantis you know, get us out of the dire straits very quickly. So all I can say is that I would not want to be president in 2024 looking at the way that the economy is going and the way things are lining up 
to have you know a, a very dystopian view of what lies in store for us. I hope I'm wrong. I pray that I'm wrong every night. I'll, all right. So I, we should probably wrap up in a few minutes. But my last question is: So you're not buying that Bidenomics is curing everything? No, no, I'm, I'm, I'm in, not. I, in, I don't in, think that's possible. I'm sorry. That's all right. I did not mean to put that on. So, but yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I really look at uh, what Biden's been doing to the economy. At points, he's helped accelerate our our inflation that we've had. The farmers are not helping us at all uh, with their wanting to keep producing ethanol and everything. We we look at that. Everybody says, well, the economy runs on energy. Well, it also runs on us being able to feed ourselves. If you don't have people that are fed, the economy stops. And when our food prices are higher, that means we have less disposable income that we can uh, use for all kinds of purchases, but entertainment and things that make us uh, happy, those have went away. And that's one of the reasons why we're heading to this point when you don't have enough money, uh, you don't have enough fun. Uh, when you don't have enough fun, you get a sour disposition. And that's where all of the United States has been heading uh, that way. And a lot of that has to do with our alternative fuels that we still mandate. And, you know, right now, we could go to coal making ethanol and it'd be much cheaper. We would have much cheaper gasoline at the pump. People would have more money in their pocket, but no, we stay with this. And one of the reasons is, is Iowa is the first and the, the biggest one in the, in the primary. So everybody's there trying to make Iowa farmers happy. And when you say we got to do away with ethanol from corn, that does not make farmers happy there or in Ohio or Michigan or uh, Kansas, they want they want to have their uh, essentially their subsidy by you know requiring that amount of ethanol in the fuel. And so, I think that you know we really need to look at changing that. And the Biden team is not looking at that. Things will start to get better as soon as we do that. We end the requirement of ethanol in our fuel and uh, soy-based diesel. I did see recently, and I guess it's been around for a while, that the Democrats have removed Iowa as the first primary or caucus state. So, and maybe that's based on that. I'm not sure. Now South Carolina is, and I'm not sure why they picked South Carolina as the first one either. Yeah, yeah, I I would, you know, much rather rather see uh, a non- agricultural state be uh the first uh one that that we look at and, well and you know, i don't know that i i don't know my ways actually, it would be florida so yeah well it, and i don't know the the purpose of the democrats doing that because they're not doing a primary with at least the president's position right right so right. i i'm not sure what the the thinking is behind it yeah well, John, I appreciate it. I don't know if you confirmed my my conclusions. I'm still kind of grappling with the whole changing of the monetary and tax system and stuff. But it, I unfortunately think you confirmed the 
the dystopian viewpoint that I had coming away from our conversation in May. Yeah, yeah. I, like I say, I, I do think we will go through that pain. How long that pain is going to be will be dependent upon who's in charge. You know, what's interesting is as I've gotten more into this, especially over the summer, um, I've wanted to, following our conversation, touch base with somebody on the left, particularly the unions, to see what their thoughts are on AI. And with the exception of the strike and little tidbits in, say, the Teamsters in San Francisco and, and the AV thing, nobody on the left seems to be wrapping their heads around this or trying to get in front of this. Yeah. yeah, I've gone to the EPI's website, which is uh, the unions run the Economic Policy Institute. The last in-depth and not even that in-depth article that they did on it or post on it was in 2019. Wow. And we are yeah. so far beyond that right now. Yeah, yeah. So. It's, it's going to hit. It's going to hit hard when it hits. It seems like it. Everything I'm reading, it's like, okay, it's not there yet, but it's coming. It's coming fast. Yeah. yeah. So, sure well, John Morrow, thank you for coming back on Labor Relations Radio. I really appreciate the conversations. Thanks for having me. Thanks. For Although having they're me. a bit scary. <laughs> yes, they are. They are. So that was economist John Morrow, again, sharing what appears to be a rather dystopian future due to AI. And if you're like I was when I first talked to him, you might be tempted to dismiss his prognosis. However, as I mentioned earlier, much of what he spoke about in our first episode back in May, I started seeing in the press within a couple weeks after we recorded that episode. And to that end, you may recall in this conversation earlier that we spoke about, or he spoke about, AI replacing lawyers. Well, as I was preparing to post this, I happened to see an article from April about GPT-4 already having passed the bar exam, which I'll link to this as well as other articles that we spoke about under the audio portion of this episode. However, as I mentioned and John mentioned, he hopes he's wrong, he prays that he's wrong, and I hope he's wrong as well. But if you go to the AI at Work library on laborunionnews.com, you'll find that AI is hitting everywhere. So all we can do is really hope for the best, prepare for the worst. But in the meantime, that wraps up another episode of Labor Relations Radio. I'm your host, Peter List. If you want to reach out, you can always reach out on the social media app formerly known as Twitter, at Workplace Report, that's at Workplace RPT. You can give us a call at 1-888-668-6466 or leave a comment under the audio portion of this episode. Thanks for listening and have a great week. Simple as it may be, it's more than I can take. Whoa, Black Creek, take me to that place. Wash my sins away. You have been listening to Labor Relations Radio. Hey, Labor Relations Radio listeners, this is just a quick reminder. If you enjoy Labor Relations Radio, make sure you share these episodes with your colleagues and make sure you and your colleagues visit laborunionnews.com and subscribe to our News Digest.